This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Barry Jones, public intellectual and former parliamentarian and cabinet minister. He joined me to talk about his new book, Looking into the Abyss, Trump, Brexit and Beyond, as well as the Canberra leadership spill, which saw Scott Morrison become Australia's next prime minister. I'm very pleased to have with me on the phone Barry Jones, who uh, is the author of many books. Uh, One, in fact, the latest is called Looking Into the Abyss, Trump, Australia and Beyond. And before that, he's written another book called Knowledge, Courage, Leadership, which is highly pertinent to what's been happening in federal politics recently. If you're not aware, Barry Jones was a Victorian MP for five years, a federal MP for nearly 21 years and was the Minister for Science between 1983 and 1990. So uh, he has a long history of working in politics, understanding the machinations of politics. And uh, I thank Barry now for your time. Hi, Barry. Hi, Amy. It's so lovely to have you on the show and great to hear that you'll be speaking later today um, for the Melbourne Writers' Festival in Clayton and I'll give the details of that um, a bit later on. But I just want to... um, understand your your first of all your take or your view of what's been happening particularly last week with the Liberal Party and then we'll get into a bit more of a bigger picture view but just your your kind of instinct and response to what what has happened well I think the the horror show that we saw in Canberra last week to a large extent reflects what's happening in the democratic scene generally, that democracies um, in Europe and, of course, in particularly in the United States under Trump, uh, are experiencing a, a fundamental change in which they do things. In other words, they're reacting immediately to the the personal, the immediate, the local, the short term, and. Um, that's why I say uh, America at one stage, uh, you know, sought leadership uh, at an international level and collaborated with other organisations. And you can see that what's happening in the case of Trump is that he wants to break down organisations. He's got no time for the United Nations. He's got no time for NATO. He's got no time for the European Union for organisations which work together collectively to try and have uh, uh, a global response that's superior. In his case, it's America first and America second and America third, and no other factors count. Now, what's clearly happened uh, within the uh, Liberal Party, the Liberal Party has moved very much to the right, partly because you've got people in it who say, well, the Trump phenomenon indicates that somewhere there's a deep conservative, perhaps even nativist base on which politics can operate. But we don't need to think globally. We just need to think locally. And you can see that um, uh, one of the factors that irritated them about uh, Malcolm Turnbull, I mean, it was partly personal, or I suppose to a very large degree personal, but it was also the fact that he seemed to embrace issues that were 
broader than a narrow uh, a narrow base for for a political party. I mean, it's curious how the same-sex marriage issue seems to have really upset a lot of the traditional people inside the Liberal Party itself. Um, and if you reflect that, you know, to win an election, you've got to have, um, uh, let's say, five or six million people actually voting directly for you. But within the Liberal Party structure itself, that is within the, uh, you know, the branch membership, you might be only looking at a total figure of something like 30, 35,000 people. Now, it's true that they're important you know, in in um, providing support at election time and going out and handing out how to vote cards, but they don't represent the community as a whole. And it's, I mean, it's so ironic when you reflect that, um, uh, you know, in a seat like uh, Tony Abbott's seat of Warringah, um, that although he campaigned vehemently um, against uh, changing the law on same-sex marriage, when the postal ballot came out, I think something like 70% of his electors actually voted in favour of change. But the point is that um, you can see that uh, uh, again and again you had people quoted, a number of them were quoted last night on the... Uh, uh, the Four Corners program to say, oh, it's terrible things are really happening because uh, uh, the the base, the party base, doesn't like the idea of um, doesn't like the idea of same-sex marriage. Maybe the electors do, but we don't, and we've got to get rid of the leadership that is sympathetic to it. And that's why, similarly, with issues like, say, um, uh, you know, taking effective international action on climate change. Well, now, I... I've, 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 I've given you such a long, such a <laughs> monologue, <laughs> I really haven't given you a chance to say anything. No, I, I'm really glad you're, um, you know, going on this thought train. It's fantastic because that's exactly where I was hoping that you would go. And it points to the really irrational um, approach that these conservatives have in Parliament, that they are uh, believing that there is a so-called base of conservatives that are highly agitated and unhappy with what um, has been happening, particularly with Malcolm, who is perceived as a, a, a Labor Prime Minister. They don't even perceive him as part of their party. A, a, not one of us. No. Not one of us. Not no. a creature of the party, as Conchetta Fioraventi-Wells said uh, last night on Four Corners. And, I mean, it is an excellent point that, um, you know, Labor seats in New South Wales were where we saw the greatest no vote in terms of the same-sex marriage postal Correct. survey. Yes, yeah, so it is surprising that that it has been listed as one of those key issues for uh, getting rid of a very popular leader who seemed to be uh, making extreme concessions to the right of his party. Do you think that uh, Malcolm Turnbull was wrong in making so many concessions that he appeared to really stand for nothing? Well, my own view is this: that uh, the the when he became the uh, liberal leader back in uh, two thousand and fifteen, uh, 
it's clear that he made some kind of undertaking to people who supported him, who uh, uh, who thought that really um, uh, Tony Abbott had run to the end of the of the pier. He couldn't. There was nowhere else for him to go except off. Um, but nevertheless, were unhappy about some of the things that Malcolm was identified with, like the Republic, like taking, you know, really very strong action on climate change. And it's pretty clear that he undertook some kind of Faustian bargain um, with uh, uh, people from the right um, in the Liberal Party uh, to say, well, look, I know you associate me with the campaign for the Republic. I know you associate me with strong action on climate change, uh, same-sex marriage and other issues. But... Believe me, if you elect me as leader, I'll be a safe pair of hands and I won't be taking strong action on these issues. Now, I suspect that there is a document of some sort indicating the, uh, which he signed up to, which has never been published, but which, if it was to be ever published, would would really destroy his credibility to a very high degree because it would suggest that uh, you know he'd been prepared to sacrifice uh, his role as a man of principle in order to hold the job now i'd like to think that i was wrong but i suspect that i'm right and that this was always the uh, the threat that was held against him to say if you fail to follow uh, a more conservative line will release this document and it will destroy your credibility forever. Mm. Well, there was the the rumour certainly around this spill that the conservative side were prepared to bring out their dirt file on Malcolm yes. Turnbull. And so, you know, there is that intimation or suggestion there was something that they can easily hold over uh, Turnbull. I'd like to um, yeah, mention that James McGrath actually did the numbers for Malcolm Turnbull and then did the numbers for Peter Dutton. So I guess that's another example of where, um, you know, there have been this uh, conservatives who jumped to Malcolm due to his popularity, who were looking after their own inter- uh, electoral interests, um, wanting to be re-elected at the next election and thought Malcolm Turnbull would deliver them that only by a one-seat majority. So a lot of Liberals did lose their seat at the last election. But it is surprising and I guess disappointing to see this constant churn through leaders um, due to expediency, but now also due to ego and ambition and revenge. Now, Barry, I'd really like to uh, talk about a different Malcolm, and this is Malcolm Fraser, who, it's so sad, is no longer with us. And, you know, he had a very, very significant presence in public life during his prime ministership, but also throughout uh, his post-politics life. He was very prominent on Twitter um, on the issue of immigration and asylum seekers. And uh, I know that you also developed a friendship with Malcolm Fraser and, you know, behind the scenes in his final years of life, were thinking about alternatives and solutions to this broader problem that our political parties have in terms of not really representing the majority of views and really trying to appeal to populism. What was, what was the idea, the essential idea that, um, that Malcolm Fraser and yourself and others had uh, devised? 
Well, well let me explain. Uh, when I was first in the Commonwealth Parliament, um, uh, Malcolm was still the Prime Minister, and uh, I must say he seemed a rather remote and rather awkward figure at that stage. However, when he left the Parliament, he founded Care Australia, and he invited me to be on the board. And I served actually for nearly 20 years on the board of Care Australia. And so we got to know each other really very well. And it was clear that when he was running Care Australia, he became, he was very passionately concerned, of course, with issues of uh, human uh, uh, cruelty, uh, the fact that people were held under terrible conditions, people had to be freed, they had to, you had to move more and more against slavery, elements of which still existed in the world. There was a lot of barbarity, there was a lot of torture, and so on. So Malcolm and I uh, really became very good friends, I think. And what we were concerned about was that... Um, both political parties were consumed by what we thought of as retail politics. In other words, that people were making decisions not on the basis of whether something was right or not, but whether it would sell. And uh, so the result was that uh, they moved away from uh, evidence. They moved in the, in the direction of generating fear and uh, in particular, uh, looking at, at the other, looking at, at something that was fairly remote from their own experience, like the life of the refugee, and seeing the refugees simply as being a threat. And what Malcolm and I talked about um, endlessly was the fact that we, we really needed to... Re to reconstitute politics so that the greatest emphasis was actually on evidence. That, in other words, on an issue like climate change, for example, you simply said, well, what does the science tell us and how do you interpret the science? What does it mean? And then, of course, if you did that, if you did that, you would identify, say, in the case of climate change, the fact that there were the four great C's, I mean the letter C in the alphabet, and the four C's, you see, were coal, cows, cars, and cement. Because, you know, in the case of cement, a case of building, there's a production of a tremendous amount of CO2 in the production process. The point is, though, that if you were going to really tackle these issues internationally, you had to... It would mean transforming an economy. You'd have to move to a post-carbon era. And, of course, it wasn't going to be easy to persuade people who are in the cattle industry to say, well, you've got to recognise that cows are part of a serious part of the problem because of their production of methane. So, in other words, to, to deal with an issue like this, you would have to look at evidence and say to the community as a whole, you're going to have to change the way in which you live. And it's not as if you could simply say, well, we've got an easy solution that we can fix all these, all these problems with a kind of a, a hey presto of some kind of, uh, you know, vague uh, 
compromise situation. You really had to have a root and branch approach to changing the way in which the economy and indeed our society worked. Now, that was going to be a massive task, not a minor task, but it would mean going out and persuading the community, persuading the Australians to say, you've got to take the long view if you're really going to be concerned about, you know, the role that you, uh, the, the lives that your children and grandchildren will face. And similarly with, with the case of refugees, that if you think of the amount of money that's actually spent each year uh, in in uh, uh, housing, in uh, looking after, well, not looking after very well, but looking after refugees, I think the, I better check the actual figure, but it's something of the order of about $400,000 a year to look after each refugee. Now, that's an, an almost an obscene amount of money in order to treat people really very cruelly, but it's taken for granted to say, oh, the Australian people feel so badly about the fact that we might be swamped by refugees uh, that, uh, you know, we, we can't look at the problem rationally. Well, Malcolm's view, in my view, was... You had to look at the situation rationally. You're not looking at terms of millions of refugees coming in. Uh, you're thinking of actually of single thousands. Yes, exactly. And you raise two key issues here that have really besieged both parties, climate change and uh, the immigration and asylum seeker yep. situation. And perhaps is that why they have floundered on this issue that they really are unable to successfully argue a point and make a case about uh, the case for change or about a certain policy that just is right and does fit the science or does fit the evidence and uh, a rational approach? Yep, that's absolutely true. Uh, they, the, because uh, essentially they're always looking at the next election and they're not looking at the next decade or the next generation. And that's, that's the tragedy. It we're is. lacking in vision, we're lacking in courage and indeed lacking in integrity in many cases. And why do you think we've seen such a continual, uh, I mean, I can't even think back to anyone in recent memory apart from um, John Howard on the GST and gun control and then obviously Paul Keating and Bob Hawke and Gough Whitlam who could prosecute a case that may be initially unpopular but was, um, you know, really an important reform that did have an element of a vision, a long-term vision and view um, on particular areas and did. Uh, now we use the word reform and it gets bandied about so much, but people haven't really, politicians haven't really undertake, undertaken significant reform in a very long time. What is, the, what is the difference? Why aren't our current politicians able to, to do that? Have, how do, why do they lack that skill set or ability? Well, I, I'd like to be able to say I had the answer to all that, and I'm not sure that I that I do, but I'll, I'll just offer a couple of uh, observations. The extraordinary thing is, if you look back at what, in some ways, was the high point of uh, general political reform, you'd have to go back a long time, back to the 1970s. 
And in the 1970s, you see, you had figures like, obviously, um, uh, Gough Whitlam on the Labour side and Don Dunstan in South Australia is a good example. Um, uh, Jim Cairns is a third. Um, uh, Lionel Murphy is, is a fourth. And you see, they were people who took the long view on issues like, say, um, white Australia. Uh, they took a long view about, you know, changing foreign policy. They took a long view about, you know, uh, coming to terms with China. They took a long view about um, preserving the environment, about uh, law reform. You see, now, uh, it, and, and at that stage, oddly, um, the total proportion of uh, Australians who undertook tertiary education was probably, I don't know, something like eight, seven or eight uh, percent of the Australian population was involved in tertiary education. Now we've got a situation where we're very much better informed. Sorry, we're we've, we're very much better credentialed would be a better way of putting it in which just on 40% have, have got tertiary qualifications. Now, theoretically, you'd say that ought to mean that the level of political debate, uh, of political discourse, will be conducted at a much higher level, a much more sophisticated level. In fact, it's quite the reverse. It is absolutely inconsistent and appalling to me that as the rate of, the, of people who are highly credentialed at tertiary education level, as that's risen, the level of political debate has simply fallen into the abyss. Now, I think what it may indicate is that a number of graduates really are looking essentially at the comparatively, at looking at their own personal careers they're less interested in what you might regard either as the national interest or indeed promoting global interests of various kinds. Uh, that's why it's extraordinary how uh, there was a period when people went into Parliament having had some good experience of outside life. You know, they'd travelled a lot or they'd been teachers or they'd been researchers of some sort, but they'd, they had some sort of professional background. Now one of the tragedies, I think, about the professionalisation of politics is that people will um, uh, approach one of the political parties and say, look, I'm a graduate, I'd like to join the party uh, and I'd like to I'd like to work for one of the, either one of the members of Parliament or one of the organisations that is you know close to the party. You might say the the um, uh, the IPA in the case of the Liberal Party, trade unions in the case of the Labour Party. So in other words, they've had no outside experience at all, mm. uh, and they see themselves as simply being careerists who are somewhere placed on the ladder and that if they only serve the party or serve a faction within the party, uh, the time will come when somebody will say, Amy, it's your turn next. Exactly. And certainly they're also in some way swayed by those that they have received support from, you know, their, their oh, stakeholders. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, factionalism has been very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Malcolm, Malcolm and I dreamed about the idea. I mean, it was, it was uh, partly a thought bubble, but we dreamed about the idea that if it were possible to create uh, a new kind of political organisation, which was essentially based on the analysis of evidence, which, which was looking for hard data. And then when you argued, you argued not, a, not as a reaction to what pressure groups were telling you, not reacting to what, say, lobbyists were trying to do, you, you really took a courageous long-term view. I mean, if you take, for example, uh, the role of state governments as being in thrall to the gambling interests. Now, I, I've got tremendous regard for... Uh, uh, for, for Dan Andrews, I think he's done some very fine things. But I'd have to say I'm deeply concerned about the extent to which uh, state Labor governments, and indeed any potential uh, government in Victoria, are completely in thrall to the to the um, uh, the gambling interests. Similarly, in Tasmania, the role of the gambling in, interests in in Tasmania, the casinos. Its political impact is devastating. And yet, you could say, according to The Economist, Australia has the, number, has the highest per capita commitment to gambling of any country in the world. And that's shameful, that's shocking, and it leads to family breakdowns, it leads, in some cases, to drug abuse, it leads uh, sometimes to, often to domestic violence and so on. But it's not a topic we can either discuss, we can't talk about it properly, and governments will not act on it, because they say, number one, we're dependent on the revenue, and we're coming under very, very strong pressure from the gambling interests. Exactly. And it's so true that gambling is such a major issue in Victoria and also to see that AFL clubs still have a significant proportion of pokies in um, their clubs as well. I mean, this is why perhaps, you know, Victoria can have such a a high surplus is that we do get a lot of revenue from gambling uh, in this state. And so it's clear to see that, um, you know, people can be um, swayed on certain issues. I mean, when, when I look at the table that you've got in your book, Knowledge, Courage, Leadership, mm. you put your um, proposed Courage Party against the Coalition and the ALP on yep. key policies. And, yep. you know, it is really um, interesting to look at at just where they sit and also where Labor sits on these things because, you know, I know you are still a member of the Labor Party, somewhat yep. um, ambivalent at times, I'm guessing, because of their stance on a range of areas that isn't evidence-based at all. Um, but, you know, some of those areas like the CSIRO that's whose funding has been cut by many yep. governments continually yep. and basically has is a shadow of its former self is one great example that you provide in this table. One other example I'd love to hear from you about um, before we have to finish is you, the, the foreign policy issue around Australia being more independent in its foreign policy and defence because I know Malcolm Fraser um, you know, did have a really strong view that Australia should not have such a close alliance with the US that we basically 
do whatever they ask us to. And, you know, there exactly. isn't there is an ANZUS treaty that still exists that um, basically means we will come to their aid in times of war. What What's your thought on that? And, you know, what would be your response in terms of what a, what a Courage Party um, line would take on such an issue like that? Well, I mean, I think, the, again, uh, you, you've got to measure uh, the fact that we're, we're living in a in the in very close to Southeast Asia. We have to cultivate very good relationships with the nations around us, and it's very important for us not to be taken for granted as simply a kind of um, uh, you know a kind of satrapy uh, uh, of the United States. It's very important that we maintain that close relationship with the United States, and I'm not. I'm not suggesting, and certainly Malcolm, Malcolm Fraser didn't suggest that we, we repudiate it. It's just that we've got to say, we've got to distinguish between our position and their position, and we've got to make it respectfully. We've got to put that point of view respectfully, although the US doesn't seem to be going too much in, in, uh, in the direction of respect these days. But, um, you know, we've got, to, we've got to say we have our own point of view uh, and we've got to form our own independent judgment and that we may have insights that they don't have in the US. Exactly. And that's another great point that Australia is a sovereign nation. And, you know, we have a history of relying on great, powerful allies like Britain yep. and also America. But maybe it is time as you've said, to take a longer-term look at things and to actively shape Australia's uh, policy and not just be reactive or responsive and, and particularly conservative, really, around how we conduct our foreign affairs. Correct. Barry, it's been absolutely wonderful to speak with you and I know we've only just uh, really touched on some of the things that you write about and speak about and I hope uh, those who are interested can head along to your talk this evening which is at the Clayton Library Theatrette in Clayton. It starts at 7pm and it is free but you do need to make sure that you register your interest via the Clayton Library which you can find on the Melbourne Writers Festival website at mwf.com.au Thank you so much Barry for joining me and I hope we can uh, pick this up again at another point Alright Amy, thanks very much Great to talk to you Thank you That was Barry Jones who is uh, an Australian public intellectual and polymath He uh, was a Victorian MP for five years a federal MP for 21 years and Minister for Science for seven years so he no doubt has much first-hand experience of politics and has had the time to reflect on it with some pretty uh, impressive leaders including um, the late Gough Whitlam and the late Malcolm Fraser.